Again, it's always good to be back with you guys. Uh, it's a pleasure to have the privilege just to gather and worship together, isn't it? Amen. Again, let's, let's do continue to pray for those who are sick. Um, they're heavy on my mind this morning. Uh, we have some little ones who are not here and I'm, you know, mamas and daddies have a lot on their plate when the little ones are sick. So let's keep them in prayer and, uh, pray that they will be back with us. This morning, if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing on in this wonderful uh, book written by the Apostle Peter to the church, the church then in the midst of suffering and persecution, and we're gleaning a lot from this, I believe. I think we're, we're leaning more to the idea as the church that, you know, suffering and persecution honestly is expected in God's church. Any time that the gospel is proclaimed, it will be resisted. And no more uh, than now in our day and age of, of this country and the centuries that this country has been a, uh, in existence, no more than now is it more of a persecution and, and animosity toward the truth of the gospel. But I think what Peter has to teach us here is very relevant and actually gives us hope, right? Even in the midst of suffering and persecution, when no one is listening to our lives as Christians, when no one is listening to our witness to the gospel, there is hope even in the midst of that. Amen? And that's what Peter is encouraging the church to do. If you'll stand with me as we read God's word, I want to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 13. We'll read verses 13 through 20 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Let's pray. Dear God, again, you give us the privilege to hear directly from your word. As we have sung praises to you this morning, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with us, that you would be in this building right now, even as we listen intently to you speak. Lord, your word is true, and it is more relevant now than ever. We are your people, we, we are your church, and God, we cry out to you always, asking for your direction asking for your love and your mercy. And we ask God that you would direct us as we would live this life as a Christian family the way you intend us to be. I pray, God, that we will actually reflect and proclaim the gospel in our response to people who are hostile to your word. 
as our families reunite and as our families uh, become stronger in you, Lord, I pray that people would see a witness through the Christian families of this church. When we go to work, Lord, I pray that they would be a witness to those who are hostile to your word. But right now, Father God, we do we do desperately need you. We desperately need your encouragement. We desperately need your grace. And I pray, God, that right now you would speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. The words of Peter here, I think, are comforting words. I mean, this series of these last several weeks, especially in chapter 3, remind us that life is not easy. Does anybody have a a cotton candy life at work this week? I mean, literally, everything at work was just fine and dandy, right? How about at home? Did everybody, everything go well at home this week? You don't have to give any details, but was everything harmonious at home this week? We live in a, a, a we live in a, a fallen world where things are always broken, I and mean, that's just the nature of the falling condition of our world, right? As Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we carry the burden of that sin with us. We are born into the curse of Adam, whether we acknowledge that or not. And all of the troubles of our world can be tied directly to that rebellion against God himself. So what do we expect? Even though Christ himself has come and Christ himself has sacrificed on the cross and risen from the dead, pays the penalty that we rightly owe for that sin, even though Jesus has completed all of that, the world is still fallen and broken, striving toward that end time when everything will be complete. Jesus, in dying on that cross, has redeemed his church to be that witness in this middle, in the middle of this persecution and brokenness. Amen? Now think about this. God did the same thing first with calling out Abraham. And then Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel. And they, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God calls them out as a redeemed people. And why does he do that? He he chose the nation of Israel as his own for one purpose, to be the light and the witness of God's glory in the midst of a broken and fallen world. Now, after the age of Christ and his time on this earth, we are now in a time where that mantle has been passed to us in the church. We are God's people. All who are under the blood of Christ are his people. This is what Peter talks about, remember, in, in, the, in chapter 1, when he calls, when he says that we are God's chosen, his elect who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are his people. Peter calls the the church that he's writing to here, he's writing to the elect exiles. In other words, he's writing to God's church. He's writing to those that God has redeemed through the blood of Christ. And so this letter is a letter of encouragement to us in the midst of a fallen, broken world. We could easily get to a place more often than not, where we say, God, you have abandoned us. Can we say amen? I think the message of First and Second Peter is more relevant now than ever. Because when we come to 13, verse 13 of chapter 3, 
Here is what Peter's reminding the church. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now that's a very interesting point there in verse 13. If we are zealous for God's glory, if we are zealous for all that is good in Christ, who is there that can harm us? Now, in the context here that Peter's writing to, this is in the in the scenario of where the church was being rounded up by Rome for suffering, for persecution, for crucifixion, for being thrown to the lions for entertainment, for being tied up on a, a post to and lit on fire as torches so that the citizens of Rome could see at nighttime. That's the torture that the church was suffering. The martyrs of the faith began early. And so when, in, in the midst of that scenario, think about these words from Peter. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Which then causes us in the faith to really have to stop and, and check our spirit. Are we zealous, first of all, and are, what are we zealous for? Are we zealous for what is good? Think about it, church. Are we zealous? What does it mean to be zealous? You can be zealous when you go down here to the Tennessee Titans football stadium on Sunday afternoon and watch the football game. Right? You can be zealous for that great bargain on eBay or QVC or Shopping down here at Belks or wherever. You can be zealous for that bargain. You can be zealous for your family. You can be zealous for a lot of things. What is it that you're the most excited for? That's, that's what it means to be zealous. The question is, folks, are we as the church zealous for the gospel? Are we zealous for what is good? And what is the definition for good? There is only one definition for what is good, and that is God himself. Because God and in his very nature, God himself is all that is good. Amen? So the question is, are we zealous for the word of God? Are we zealous for God's mission and his glory through Jesus Christ? If we are that zealous, if we have that attitude and that passion, and we are loyal to the gospel and loyal to our Savior Jesus Christ, and we are proclaiming that word everywhere that we can, nothing can harm us. Now, that's a promise in the word. Amen. Now, it's interesting here that, that Peter does give a good clarification. Continue on to verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This 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 zealousness, this to be a zealot for Christ means that our hearts honor Christ. And we must be prepared to make a defense. And this is very important. The implication here in verses, in verses 14 and 15 means that we must be able to give a defense. That, that word to give a defense is the word that we actually get apologetics from. You ever heard of Christian apologetics? It's an academic discipline, but what it is, it, it's, it's being able to think through the defense of the faith. Now, we don't have to make excuses for Christ. That's not the point. Because when we think about an apology, it's like we're, we're, we're oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I know that you don't like to listen to this, but I'm so sorry that I have to tell you about Jesus. That's not the point here. To make a defense, to actually present an apologetic, means we are firm in what Christ says. We are firm in what he's done for us on the cross. And I firmly believe it. 
We don't have to apologize for the gospel. We don't have to be sorry to be Christians. Amen. We can still stand up to the hostility of the gospel. But notice how Peter tells us that this is to be done at the end of verse uh, 16. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it how? With gentleness and respect. I think Christians need to underline that one line right there at the end of verse 15. When we are giving a defense for the gospel, number one, we are we are defending the gospel because someone has seen the light of Christ in us, first of all. Notice the, notice the, the pattern here. If we are in Christ, if we honor Christ the Lord as holy in our attitudes, in our lifestyles, in our work style, Everything that we put our hands to, if we do it for the glory of the Lord, it will show and people will see. But the way this happens is the spirit of Christ, and this is the theme throughout all of Peter's work here. The spirit of Christ in the Christian is not a spirit of aggression and defensiveness. It is a spirit here of gentleness and respect. And it bothers me, it bothers me that Christians feel like they have to be aggressive and they have to take the methods of the world to defend the gospel when we've got the greatest truth ever. And that is the gentleness and the respect that Jesus himself exhibits through his life, his perfect sinless life, his Willingness to lay down on the cross. He did not fight back against his accusers. He did not wrestle with the Roman soldiers when they put those nails in his hands. He laid down willingly because he knew the greater good was for our benefit. There would have been no hope for our eternity had Jesus not fulfilled what God the Father asked him to do. And so in like manner, if we reflect the spirit of Christ, how can we excuse aggression aggression in our defense of the gospel and demanding our rights. Yes, we have rights in the United States. Yes, we have religious liberty and we should stand for religious liberty. But the method that we must follow in defending our religious liberties is that of what Peter says here of gentleness and respect. What is it that cable news does anymore? It's not news anymore. It's aggressive opinion. It's entertainment when you've got people screaming at each other on the TV screen. And then you have that guest Christian on the, on, well, let's just say on CNN. And then you have to question when they give their theology. Oh, that doesn't sound very Christian to me, right? But they've got them on there for entertainment value, not for defense of the gospel. Folks, we don't have to bow to the desire of the world in defending the faith. We just live it. Amen. And I think Peter's words here are encouragement to the church who is suffering persecution and death and martyrdom. You don't have to fight back the way the world does. The, Jesus has conquered it all. Amen. He is the Lord and Savior of all. The entire world bows underneath his feet. That's all we need to remember. 
And if that's the case, then Jesus is going to come to our aid. He's going to come to our defense. When we have to defend the gospel, it's not that we have to fight back. It's that people see something in us. They see that that spirit of gentleness and respect that is so different and radically different than the world. They're saying, what is it in you that, that you're so calm? What is it in you that is so peaceful? Is the world not really hungry for peace and serenity and harmony? Now, in this fallen world, that will never fully come to come about. It, we will always have aggression and strife. But as God's people, we're called to be different. Not or not as an act of command. It is a command. But more so, it's so that we reflect Christ. We allow Christ to literally control and guide and direct our entire attitudes and behaviors and everything we put our hands to. And if that actually happens in sincerity and pureness and holiness, the world can't avoid it. They'll be drawn to it, drawn to the light in the midst of the darkness through us. Amen. Now, let's see what else Peter has to say here. Let's look in verse 16. Going further with this gentleness and respect, he says, speaking to the church, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That right there is exactly the model of Jesus himself in the Gospels. Whenever his, whenever the Pharisees and the religious leaders came after Jesus, he didn't have to stand up and, and fight. He just stood firm for the truth. And he allowed his enemies to dig their own graves. And they shamed themselves. Jesus didn't have to. They shamed themselves and their attitudes and their behavior toward his, toward his message and toward God Almighty. Likewise, we in verse 16, if we are actually producing good behavior and good behavior comes out of an, a harmony and an alignment with the Spirit of Christ, because there's no way that you and I can be good. Moms and dads, can we say an amen when our children disobey all the time? Is Are they perfectly good children? Now, grandparents would look at the grandchildren and say, oh, they're just so home. They're just so sweet. But parents, they look uh, up. Come on. When we're parents, we know our children aren't sweet. But we love them. And our goal and our, and our responsibility as parents is to teach our children good behavior, not out of you better behave or else, out of fear and intimidation, but rather out of I want to please you, Mom. I want to please you, Dad. I want to do the right thing. Now, does God not expect the same thing from his children in the church? You and me, adults, we are God's children. We don't we don't have good behavior out of our own efforts, because if that was possible, then we wouldn't need salvation in Jesus Christ. Only through the blood of Christ is, quote, good behavior, the words of Peter here, ever possible. The Apostle Paul also responds to this. He says this very clearly in, in his letters to the church. He says, we cannot live this Christian life apart from God and from the mercy and the grace imparted to us through Jesus Christ. Only through the blood of Christ can we ever hope to even come close to living the Christian life. We can't model this on our own. Only through the blood of Christ is this possible. So if, in verse 16, if someone reviles our good behavior, that means that they're reviling the gospel itself. Now, this is the condition only if we as the church are actually behaving 
in a Christ-like way. Our words are Christ-like. Our attitudes, even toward our enemies, are peaceful and loving and gracious. But now, folks, and, and when we get into uh, chapter 4 of 1 Peter, Peter's going to make it very clear. If you are a busybody or a gossip, if you are causing your own troubles, then that is not the same thing. If you are in trouble with the world because you are behaving like the world, then what do you expect? But, as God's people, if we are honestly, genuinely in the spirit of Christ, living harmoniously together as God expects us to be, and we live with love and respect and peace toward others, if in that attitude and in that circumstance, if we are attacked, according to Peter here in verse 16, the truth will reveal itself. I'm a firm believer that truth will always Shine. It may take a while for it to come to light, but the truth will always reveal itself. And in this situation, if we are right, if we are in Christ and the world is against us, the truth will come out and the world will be shamed. We don't have to fight for that. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to manufacture that. God himself is in control. And the very end of all times and the judgment day, that's when all of that will be revealed. Amen. So why do we stress and worry now if God's got it all figured out? That's what Peter's encouraging the church. We don't have to stress and worry about how we'll defend the gospel. God's going to take care of that. In the end, the truth will reveal itself. On judgment day, God will know who are the sheep and who are the goats. We don't have to fight it. We don't have to defend ourselves. Christ himself on the throne of judgment will say, I knew you, but I didn't know you. We don't have to worry about it. That's what Peter's saying. So let's keep going here. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, in verse 17, I think you need, if, if you wish to highlight this, please do so. The greasy gospel, the greasy grace message of the church right now in the United States and around the world uh, in too many places is this, that God does not want his people to suffer. Now, let me clarify what I'm about to say here. Nowhere in this text and nowhere in the New Testament do I see that God intentionally wants us to suffer. But he may allow some difficult times for his glory. But he will never give us more than we can bear. And he will never give us more than what he desires is right. But right here in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, I mean, that right there, if God wills the suffering as the result of our doing good, I think God has a plan at work here, and he's, uh, he's giving us the privilege as his people to actually reflect the gospel and reflect God's glory in the midst of doing good, and the world causes suffering for us because of it, God will be praised. Amen? But can we praise the Lord in the midst of hard times? Even though we know that we're following Christ, we know that he is with us, we know that he has blessed us, we know that we are honoring his word every chance that we are possibly able to do so, and we know that our heart is in alignment with the Lord, and then suddenly bad things come and people attack us. I would argue that that right there is a perfect example and a sign that we are in God's graces if the world is attacking our character, and the world is attacking the gospel that we live for. 
if the world's not attacking us, I'm not, I'm wondering how, how really aligned we are with the word. If we're not facing a little bit of persecution and a little bit of suffering for actually speaking the gospel, are we speaking the gospel at all? I'm not saying that we have to every time look for trouble. That's not the point. But I'm wondering if our life, our Christian lives are very peaceful and always easy and never any trouble at all. Are we even proclaiming the gospel for anyone to hear? Because when we teach, when we preach the gospel, when we live the gospel, I promise you people are going to notice it and they may not like it. If we are at work and we are expected to cut corners and cheat on something, a project that we're asked to do, I'll just fudge those numbers on the spreadsheet or, oh, you don't have to report that. We'll just let that slide. What's the right thing to do? They're having fun downstairs. Right? Honestly, it's difficult. Maybe we may be in a work situation where we are asked by our employer not to be ethical. Will we stand up and do the right thing? Regardless of the consequences, even if it means losing the job for not doing what the boss wants you to do. I think that would be an example here of suffering for doing good. It's better to suffer for doing good than to to agree and do evil. Now, verses 18 through 20, I want us to close out with this section here, because I think this is very important. All that we've talked about here from 13 through 17 is setting the stage here for what's coming next. If we as Christians, as God's people, face persecution, Peter's reminding us here in verse 18, we're not alone in that. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Can we be reminded of that? If we are in the midst of suffering for the faith, we must be reminded that it was our Savior himself who suffered more than we could ever imagine. Can we say amen to that? For Christ also suffered once for sins. If Christ suffered extremely, how are we as Christians going to avoid the same if we are to reflect Christ? To be a Christian means to be in the image of Christ, which means our very nature has changed. Our very heart has changed. Our mind has changed to that of the mind of Christ. If we are Christ-like, are we going to avoid the suffering that Jesus suffered? I don't know that well. I mean, we could look throughout the history of Christianity and see martyrs of the faith who suffered horrible tortures. Some would argue probably more horrendous than what Jesus suffered. The only thing that made it different was that Jesus' suffering not only was physical and, and horrible and crushing, but Christ's suffering also was he had the weight of everyone's sin on him. We will never have that suffering. Only Christ himself was able to do that. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus suffer in verse 18? He suffered so that he would actually redeem us and bring us to the throne of God himself and so that we could experience His presence for eternity. Because in our sin and in our rebellion to the God Almighty, we are separated from Him for eternity. The only cure for that, the only repair for that, was to be restored to God's graces through the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ was triumphant here. 
so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. You see, Jesus' life, even though he did die in the flesh, he rose again in the spirit and his flesh rose with that, and he showed the way for you and me. That's exactly the same promise that we have. Amen. Jesus rose bodily. He rose spiritually. He rose pure and clean, just exactly as he was before. He was sinless throughout his whole life, even through the death and the suffering and and taking on the price for our sin. He still arose victorious and even in more glory than we could ever imagine. Jesus remained this way. Verse 19. Jesus did not wish that we should suffer for eternity. Because here's what he says in verse 19. In which he went, this was, this is speaking about Jesus in those days of, when he was in the tomb, when he was in the, the, the realm of the dead, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. Now, verse 19, I want to spend a little more time here on verse 19, because this is a, a, a verse of contention. This is a verse that has had many different interpretations, and I want us to maybe walk through a little bit of that. I'm not going to proclaim here the absolute truth here of this passage. I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of background, and we'll give you a little bit of uh, insight here, verse 19, because there's a lot of different interpretations here, but I think there's also some improper ones too. Looking here in verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, where do we get this? Well, I mean, clearly here in in the scriptures we see the the issue. But Peter also mentions this again. We're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2 here in a minute. But think about this. When Jesus died on the cross and he was in the grave for those three days, what happened? I mean, that's it's a fundamental theological question that people always wrestle with. Okay, Jesus was dead for three days. What did he do? Was he just asleep? Was he in a coma? This verse right here tells us that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison the truth of the gospel. Now, some will argue that Jesus went to a place called purgatory and he preached the gospel to those souls who were held in limbo for generations and eons before he was able to actually come and fulfill the gospel. I mean, that is one message. That's one interpretation here. That that those thousands of years before Jesus, all of those people who died in the Spirit didn't have Jesus, so they were just kind of held in limbo here, in purgatory. And they had to wait to hear the truth of the gospel. And, and the only way they could hear the truth of the gospel was to kind of be held in this holding cell or this holding realm or whatever. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he actually had time to go and preach to them. I don't know that that's the interpretation here that's right. I don't think that's right. I don't see anywhere in Scripture evidence for a holding place that some would call purgatory. Okay. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. God knows. I don't think the evidence is here. The issue here is the word that is actually being used for spirits. Peter uses a word, the Greek word for spirits here. And there's two different ways that you could write this word for the spirit. Now, if Jesus was proclaiming to souls, like human souls, held in a holding pattern, 
until he could preach to them. Then I think there's a different word here. There's a word for spirits, for the human spirit or the human soul. That is not the word used here. The word that is actually used here is the word that you could actually use in connection with the Holy Spirit. But he's clearly not talking about going to speak to the Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit, and that's God's Spirit. Amen? But that word for spirit can also imply eternal spirits, like, you know, demons, fallen angels, whatever. Now, is Jesus going there to preach the gospel to evangelize them? No. Because the word here for proclaimed is not the word for evangelize. So if you break down that, I don't know that Jesus is there to evangelize to human souls that have been held in purgatory. I don't see the evidence there. But I think what might have happened is that when Jesus, during those times, he goes and he proclaims his victory over death to all of the rebellious underworld, I am the Lord Almighty. I have declared victory over all sin. You have no more power. It's not that Jesus is going to preach the gospel to souls hoping that he could redeem some souls after the fact. I think instead what Peter's implying here is that he's going into the underworld and he's telling Satan, you have no more power over my people. You have no more power over the world, demons. I've got control now. This this theme in 1 Peter of the Christus victor, that Jesus is the victor over all sin and stuff, is the theme that we see even in this passage here. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's see if we can get a little bit of extra insight. 2 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 4. Again, this is Peter speaking in a second letter. Same, same theme, same passage. Let's try to compare this to see what's happening. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and then we're going to skip down to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I think when you read that text and you compare it to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 19, I don't think that Jesus goes to preach the gospel to human souls who have been left in limbo. I get the impression he's preaching the truth to the fallen demons and the fallen angels and all the spirits that are out there to try to condemn us and put us down and try to rebel against God Almighty. There's a spiritual warfare out there, folks. Amen. And I think what Peter is writing here is that Jesus Christ is proclaiming in verse 19 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. He is proclaiming, I am the Lord. I am the victor. Because if God's church is under attack and persecution by the world, who is stirring up the world to come against the gospel? It's those who are in sin. And who is in control of those who are in sin and who is in control of the fallen world? It's Satan and his demons. In this context, Jesus is saying, I have redeemed my church. I have redeemed my people. Satan, leave them alone. Satan, leave them alone. But the message from Peter to the church is this. You have a Savior that loves you. You've got a Savior who is protecting you. 
even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your persecution, know that Jesus has your back. Know that Jesus is in control. And if you love him and he loves you and he serve and you serve him and he directs your life, he's going to protect you even in the midst of suffering. And you're still going to suffer, but Jesus is there as well. But he's the king and he's the conqueror and he's the victor. Doesn't mean you're going to avoid suffering because Jesus himself didn't avoid suffering, but he knows how to stand up. He knows how to fight back in a way that we don't know. I think that's the encouragement to the church. Amen? Amen. Now, next week I want to actually unpack what Peter's talking about here about Noah and connect that with verses 21 through 22 and following. But I want us to go away from here this morning. I want you just to ponder and and see how, how do we apply this message this morning? How do we apply what God has to say? Folks, I mean, are we are we prone to worry? Can we get an amen? Are we prone to to just gripe and complain? You know, our spouses know better than anybody how much we can whine and cry and complain, don't they? Thank you, Rhonda. Rhonda and I have, a, and I think I've shared this. Rhonda and I have a a saying that whenever we come home at the end of a busy day or a stressful week, and we just want to vent. We know that that's our job, and we just kind of hold the bucket for the other person to vent into. And then we just, when they're done, we take the bucket and throw it out. But, I mean, life, life is hard. And we want to cry for justice. You know, uh, my boss is is mean, and he's vicious, and, and it's just not fair, and you know, my husband doesn't love me and my children won't listen and you name it. I went to the Walmart and this mean person cut me off in the checkout line. You know, what? go down the list. Now, is there a point where some healthy venting is, is necessary? I'm going to argue as a pastor, yes. It's okay to vent and get it off your chest, get it out of your system, but do it in a healthy way. Uh, I think Christians must must learn discretion. Now, I think part of that spirit of peace and gentleness that Peter talks about also implies an attitude of discretion. Like as Christians, we must be discreet on when and where we vent. Okay, who we vent to. You just don't want to vent to somebody that's going to go tell everybody your business. Amen. You need to vent to someone who you can trust. So we hold each other up and we encourage each other and hold each other accountable. So how do we apply this? It's real. I think what it's it's not simple because life is complicated. But Peter's message here to the church is endure the suffering that the Lord has allowed to happen. Not that God has brought it to you, but God does control even the evil of the world. And he will allow us to suffer, but no more than what we can bear. But if that happens, God is allowing it for one purpose, and that is for his glory. So that he can look at his children and say, look how proud I am of my children. Look at how they went through that. That's what he did in the book of Job. He was proud of his servant Job. And he told Satan, okay, you think you can get him? I've got confidence in my servant Job. You go after him. But you can't go so, but you can only go so far. Even in that situation, in the book of Job, God even controlled Satan and how far he could go. But he allowed his servant Job 
to suffer so that he could show Satan, my people love me. My people love me. So do we love God even in the midst of hard times? That's kind of the question, isn't it? See, the problem is we could easily conclude that God has abandoned us in the midst of suffering and persecution. If a loved one dies, and trust me, going through a loved one's death, that is the hardest suffering that anyone can endure. Does that mean that God has abandoned us? Or is he going to give us the strength we need to endure even that grief as a witness to those around us? That's the message, I think, from Peter. I think it's important for us to take that. Let's pray. Dear God, you love us. And even though we we don't live in a perfect world, God, we, we serve you and you are perfect. And for this truth, God, I pray that you would remind us that you've got us right in your right where you need us, right where you want us. You've got us in your arms and your loving embrace and you're always watching over us. And we know this is true. We can take, we can be assured of this truth. We can stand firmly, dear God, because your word says that the salvation that Jesus has allowed to happen through his sacrifice and resurrection. Because of that, we have hope for renewal. We have hope for forgiveness. We have hope for a new life. And no matter what comes against us, God, we have that promise to hold on to. And so I pray, dear God, that you would give us the strength needed to endure any kind of offense to your word. If we... Please you, dear God, in how we serve you, if we please you in how we witness to others and live out the gospel in peace and gentleness. And dear God, we know without a doubt that you've got us right where you need us. And I pray, God, that you go with us even today. Anyone here, Father, who has heard these words, who needs to maybe do a little business with you. I pray, God, that you would listen to their cries. That you would pour out your mercy upon them. And that you would love them and hold them in your arms. And let them know that no matter what is happening in their life, you're right there. We thank you, God, for this truth. We thank you, God, that we are saved through the blood of your Son. And for that, we can guarantee that you've got us exactly where you need us and we have an eternity waiting for us. Teach us, dear God, to serve you well. Teach us, dear God, to be your witnesses in the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.